Welcome to Dissecting Education, where we take a spherical look at the education landscape from many vantage points. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks. Glad you're here with us today. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dissecting Education. Today, I'm here with Jessica Katz. She is a trainer, mentor, and coach through Liberated Elephant. Jessica is passionate about working with individuals, teams, leaders, and organizations to help people discover and nurture their authentic selves. With this new knowledge, Jessica helps them uncover solutions that move them forward on their journey. Her methodology is informed by agile values, principles, and practices, creating a safe space for clients to be wholly themselves without judgment. Thank you, Jessica, for being here. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you today. Um, Why don't you tell us, start by telling us a little bit about yourself that is maybe not in your bio. A little stuff that's not in my bio. Let's see. I am a consummate learner, which is one of the reasons why I was interested in being in this podcast. And I educate in um, adult learners, Mm -hmm. so in the corporate environment. And, um, you know, like everybody else working from home, my son is... Uh, back in school. He's in fifth grade. My husband is back to work. He's a massage therapist. And um, I married into an academic family and my grandmother was a teacher. So I have a lot of um, uh, people around me who are in the education industry. Um, and and so, um, so there's a little bit about like trivia I don't usually talk about, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Love that so much. So tell us a little bit more about how, you know, your, what you do with, with corporate training and adult learning and, um, and kind of also uh, your company's name is Liberated Elephant. And uh, for anyone who listens to my podcast knows I am an elephant fan. So tell us a little bit about what, what um, that means to you and how the, the company got its name. Sure. Um, well, let me start there and then I'll back into okay. the corporate training stuff. So um, Liberated Elephant, I um, sort of one of my superpowers is to see chinks in the armor, chinks in the armor of a person's behaviors against their words, chinks in the armor about corporate culture or uh, leadership behaviors against company policy, things like that. I'm just good at chinks in the armor. Inside organizations, it's not always loved because, um, you know, I'm part of the team. I'm supposed to be a team player. And uh, one of the reasons I started this business is because I wanted to get into a position where people were paying me for that bad news, right? So, not so, um, so much, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's needed. An outside advisor is really an important factor for that kind of feedback. So, yeah. I like so valuable. Yep. Often, the chink in the armor is like a leader who's the problem, right? They're the elephant in the room. And um, my uh, tagline is make the elephant work for you. So, um, really, what we're trying to do is turn the elephant into a uh, a strength of an organization instead of something that holds them back. That is wonderful. I love that so much. And how did you, um, how'd you get into this work? Um, Obviously it's your superpower and you knew it, but how, tell us about a little bit more about your journey to, to the place that, that you got yeah. to. Um, so I started my sort of corporate journey as a project manager and project managers see a lot of chinks in the armor. (laughs) There's a lot of like, no project is ever correctly estimated. No project ever, ever meets on time on budget. Like all of that, we're seeing the pain. Absolutely. Regular basis. And um, in that role, in the old style of doing things, it was very, you know, command and control. All the responsibility fell to me. I would run after people. Are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? 
Um, and then I got introduced to Agile, which is a, another uh, methodology for running projects, particularly ones that are complex, which most of our business is today. And um, kind of, it felt like coming home. I get to just treat everybody like adults, and then we're going to make decisions based on reality. This sounds amazing. So, um, so that was a little bit of how I got there. And um, then I moved into coaching. And um, in the Agile world, an Agile coach is a coach and a facilitator and a teacher and a mentor. So um, the training arm of my life sprung up out of that. And um, I do training now. I uh, often subcontract through an organization called Soft Ed or Software Education is their full title. And um, I do independent training as well. And, um, uh, you know, I'm bringing, I'm bringing education to corporate learners so that they can just, you know, get, the, get things done better and easier and also be better humans. Um, and so it's a little bit of my journey that, that answers to your first question, which is how did I get into training? So. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us when you engage with a client, tell, give us a kind of a day in the life. What, how do you, um, how do you engage and what kind of um, activities do you do to kind of be able to have that perspective, to see those chinks? And then how do you mitigate that and, and kind of explain it? So uh, the first order of business is to figure out where they are. You can't, you can't get anybody to where they want to be unless you know where they are. Absolutely. So I spend some time with them um, assessing, you know, there's usually some sort of conversation with a leader who's like, we need help. Like, okay, what do you want to get out of this? So we have that conversation. And once they, you know, pull the trigger and say, okay, let's go, there's an assessment activity. Where are we now? And um, then uh, where do we want to be? So there's a vision setting. What does the future look like? If we do everything the way we wanted to do, what would it look like? What, what's the perfection we're striving for? Um, and then I spend, do some training if it's necessary, like maybe we need to teach some communication skills, or maybe we need to get aligned on what that vision is, and we'll do some, you know, uh, workshops around where we're trying to get to. Um, and then I coach. And the, the interesting thing about coaching, uh, it's easy to get coaching conflated with consulting. And there mm -hmm. is certainly some consulting in my work, but coaching is really about um, helping other people get to where they want to go, not where I think they should go. Right. And right. I bring, I try and, I try and withhold my own expertise as much as possible and only nudge them if I see a big risk that they're about to embark on or something mm -hmm. that's, let's say an organization has decided to embark on um, a journey of creating greater transparency in their organization. And they are making strategic decisions at the top, but not involving individual contributors. That's a disconnect. Now the individual contributors don't have transparency into the journey that gets you to the strategic goals. So um, that would be something I might bring up as a coach. It's more about you decided where you wanna be. Now I'm gonna show you when you're doing things that don't take you there, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to me saying, do it this way. There right. is some of that sometimes, you know, if they want to implement Agile as a, a project management or software development process, there are methods that they could adhere to. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's a little bit more consultative in the beginning. But as we move on, the idea is for me to work myself out of a job. As we move on, I want my voice to be in their head so they can ask themselves the right questions themselves. That's awesome. I love that. Um, yeah, it is. It's such a unique um, position. So I came out of 
you know, uh, corporate consulting and, um, and even even way prior to that, uh, nonprofit consulting, which was on a smaller scale, but then I went to corporate consulting and making this shift to coach, um, is a very specific kind of differentiation, right? You, you're looking, I always say, I like to be a flashlight in a mirror. I like to help them see what their own future presents, but really help them look at themselves and where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are and like, and give that, um, be able to reflect on that, um, on what's already in them versus, you know, prescriptive consulting, uh, where you're brought in for your expertise here. You're just brought in to, to help flush everything out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit different. And, and it's not that I don't bring expertise when it's necessary. Absolutely. It's not my primary objective. I really want them to learn experientially. Mm -hmm. Like I just say that through experience, and experientially, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, I want them to learn through experience, and and that way the learning sticks more, and they come out the other side better for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, tell us what are some of the you know kind of challenges that you see with organizations? If you were to do, kind of do a meta assessment with different organizations you've worked with, are there some themes around? Um, what kind of challenges they're experiencing right now? Well, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. So <laughs> the, yes, for uh, sure. Yeah, the challenges they're experiencing right now are things like, um, can we let people work from home? Yeah. The can we let people is one of the chinks in the armor. It's one of the elephants in the room. Um, uh, not every state is like this, but in Tennessee, where I live, it's a work, it's a right to work state. So people can quit without giving notice and people can get fired without getting notice. Um, now, in practice, people quit with giving notice because otherwise they get a bad reputation. Um, and it doesn't happen in the reverse, by the way. And uh, um, that's a systemic chink in the armor. But the idea here is that if you're going to let people work from home and they can find another job where they get to work from home, they're going to leave you. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a huge, I, I know not every business has that capability, but the businesses that do, what's stopping you? That would be my question. What's stopping you from, from allowing the work from home life to continue? Mm -hmm. Especially since the data indicates um, that you get higher productivity out of people, more hours a day in actual work, and a higher engaged, happier workforce. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you follow the data? Um, and often what's stopping people is they just don't trust people to do their job, mm -hmm. even while the data indicates they're doing it. Yes. That trust thing is so interesting to me. I also have worked with, you know, before, before being on my own, I have worked uh, with, you know, under bosses who are just very, they just, if they can't see it with their own eyes, they can't believe it. And it, um, it's very disempowering to workers who really are very self-sufficient or very self-motivated and, and kind of feel like they're being punished for maybe the bad apple who isn't, or who does abuse the company time, which is so much actually more rare. Um, and sometimes it isn't happening in an organization at all. It's totally just a perception of fear. Yep. Uh, often they're getting punished because somebody is afraid or doesn't trust and that's it. And, um, you know, I'm, I happen to be building a workshop around emotional intelligence right today. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> so I'm in it at the moment. You're, you're knee deep in it. This, this is very minute. And uh, the, 
you know, the ability to be aware that I'm making a choice for my business because I'm afraid of what could happen instead of making a choice for my business because I'm confident of what will happen is, is a really big deal. I, I think that's, that's a super, that's a super big challenge. And the workforce, all the people that you could hire are talking right now about what I really, I don't want a ping pong table and snacks in the break room. I want to, I want to get the hour of driving back every day and work from home and be able to do my laundry over lunch and, um, or run laundry between meetings, whatever. Um, and just have a better standard of living that's more aligned. Mm -hmm. with yeah. And, you know, it's really, you know, for me, I have worked at home for um, five years now, six years almost. And I, in a lot of ways, miss an office, right? This was way pre-pandemic. It's not, it wasn't, you know, pandemic was just one more oddity because I was at home more in the evenings and, and, and on the weekends than I was. But day to day, I have worked from home for a long time. And like I said, I miss a little bit of the office, but I still can't imagine ever going back to having to show up there every day, regardless of what was going on in my life, regardless of what was going on with the weather. I live here in Colorado. Sometimes the weather uh, doesn't want to wake me, leave home. And, you know, that is also a sent to me, the greatest leaders right now, as they struggle with this decision on how to, you know, what the norm of, of what the new norm will be for their company is really about empathy. And can you work out something that gives people, you know, what they want in a sense, um, because someone like me, if I was working for, you know, a company and I had the option, I'd probably choose two days a week and go in and I would plan my life around that, um, a, around wanting to be in the office and engage with people a little bit, but still wanting to maintain a lot of this, the flow of, of what I have going on at home. And I have, you know, two dogs at home and I have, you know, like you said, laundry or, or I prep, I prep dinner at two o'clock because I only have a meeting I have to listen to and not be on camera, you know, whatever, these things are, are um, how we work out life, right? And, and I think a lot of it uh, is, can be mitigated around really authentic empathy and, and communication with, with your people. Yeah, I, it's, you know, picking on that empathy thing, I, I don't know a single person that's in leadership that would want somebody dictating to them what hours they should be working. Right. Right, and, and what yet they're doing it to all of their staff. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm crystal clear that when I work for somebody as a consultant, I'm trading my time for their money. Yes. But so yes. is every single employee. They're trading mm -hmm. their time for your money. Mm -hmm. And the commitment you made to them was that you would, it's usually 40 hours a week, specific hours where these closed, da, da, da. But if you could open that up and give them more autonomy and they still get their job done, then they're trading the time they want to spend on your work for your money and you're still getting the same value. Right, exactly. Right. And you know, and the truth is all of the research points to anything in the workplace points to people who are the most committed and the most productive are those that feel heard, that feel appreciated, that feel, um, you know, that there's authenticity and um, transparency and those kind of things. And the organizations that kind of circle the wagons and force dictate and don't listen to the real needs of their own people are the ones who end up with people who are burnt out and who are disengaged and or turnover, right? The, the end of the line is always turnover um, and you can lose some of your great people. 
uh, and we all know how much uh, it's it's no secret how much turnover costs organizations. Um, yeah, it's funny the the pandemic. A lot of the the reading about it has been talking about what they're calling the great resignation, and yeah. some, some of that is natural turnover that was pent up because of the pandemic and because we just were you know, no one wanted, everyone was just like in hold, you know, lockdown mode, not just like physical, but also emotional and mental. But, um, you know, but some of it too is an awakening of sorts, right? An awakening to, hey, if I was successful in this different environment and it better suits me and, and my boss doesn't want to adapt or my organization doesn't want to adapt, then maybe it's time that I, that I look somewhere else, right? And, and I think these are, are a combination of factors fueling this like great resignation that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's plenty of companies that are doing the right things for their employees mm -hmm. enough now that we can see that it's definitely working mm -hmm. um, that, you know, people who get paid a standard of living that makes it comfortable and not so that they're always scraping penny and nickel um, perform better and are more engaged because they don't have to worry about the money anymore people who are treated with respect and have autonomy over their time and how they show up at work have higher engagement and higher engagement leads to better customer satisfaction and higher productivity. And, um, you know, over and over and over again. Um, and even better, if you have a company that's really creating a competitive, competitive advantage with their leadership, if the people that are managing people are being, are being, um, educated and coached on how to be a leader that leads in that kind of environment, they'll, they can set themselves apart. People will want to work there just to work with those bosses. Um, because your boss makes or breaks your happiness, can make or break your happiness at a company. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You're the relationships you have at work, hundred percent effect and your coworkers, coworkers can do a lot. If you if you really truly develop great relationships with them and you work on a great team or just around great people, even if they're not on your team, but your day-to-day -day is very much dictated by the relationship you have with, with your direct supervisor, whoever that is, and how your values and your you know wishes align with them. And that's, it is just, just so important. I, well, I love the work that you're doing. I think that it's so needed and such an interesting um, niche that you've been able to to, to find and to really uh, illuminate for organizations. But, so tell us, I'm gonna switch gears and to the question I ask every guest, which is tell us a, um, an interesting education memory of some sort that stuck with you, something that, that just kind of uh, stayed with you for however long. Well, you know, I've been giving some thought to this coming into this call today. Thank goodness I had some warning. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I'm gonna, there was a teacher, Mrs. Farley, if I'm remembering correctly, in my high school. I went to high school in Maryland, so this is a shout out to Liberty High School in Maryland. And um, uh, she was, I was in like an ex existential literature class. And um, at the very beginning of class, of the school year or that class period, I think it was a half a year, it doesn't matter. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> in that class, she said, she said, it doesn't matter how hard you work, it matters what you learn. And I spent that entire class of like, okay, it doesn't matter how hard I work, it matters what I learn. So I didn't do any of the homework. Like I didn't do any of the homework for that class. And um, at the end of the class, we had our final and I did my final and I passed the final really well. 
mm-hmm. because I was learning. And mm-hmm. she calls me up. She's like, you clearly knew this work. Why didn't, why didn't you do the homework? I'm like, it doesn't matter how hard you work. It matters what you learn. <laughs> she was like, okay. And she curved me up because of it, wow. um, because of that conversation. And, um, and that has really stuck with me from an education perspective. It just matters what I learn. And the more I learn, the less hard I have to work is what I'm learning, right? That the, right. the more I learn, the more I know, the less difficult it is, a turtle becomes less difficult, um, which can be an interesting challenge when you're trying to find things that challenge you, right? Um, right? <laughs> yeah. but, the, uh, but that's the idea. That's probably my biggest education memory. I have another one though I wanna share as well. Please do. Um, my grandmother was a kindergarten teacher as long as I've known her and before I was born, she was a kindergarten teacher and she worked in um, an inner city school and she was the only white person in the entire school. Oh. So it was a school completely full of people of color. And um, I was going to school in the county. So she worked in the city and sometimes the county was closed on days the city wasn't. And I would go with her to class. And I was like this anomaly in that space. And it was the first time I really got open to the reality that from my perspective, I didn't, I didn't um, get exposed to very many, to very much diversity. Mm-hmm. And from their perspective, neither did they. And that our bubbles really define our perception and what we're capable of seeing in the world. Yeah. That's obviously with a very adult mind. When I was seven, I didn't put that spin on it. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I look back and I'm like, no, that was really formative for me for these reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's created in me a desire to con- constantly strive to see outside of my own perception bubble. Um, so it's made me a consummate learner. Um, so that's, those, are my, those are my education memories. For I you. love that. The idea of consummate learner, it is, you know, I think those of us who really, I mean, either strive to, or, you know, in, in some senses, if you're lucky enough, say that you are like really happy in life. I do believe that being a consummate learner is a huge piece of that because every one of us can get stagnant, no matter what is happening in life. And if you stop learning, you become stagnant and that learning can be anything. I tell people all the time when I talk to them about, you know, trying new things, I'm like, what's the harm in, you know, reading a book or watching a YouTube or hands-on digging in the ground. If you, you know, try gardening, try ice skating, try, you know, whatever it is. And if you hate it, don't do it again. No one cares. Like it is not, you don't have to, you know, I think some of us were brought up in houses and I was really not one of them, fortunately. Um, But some people were brought up in houses where if you start something, you have to finish it, right? If you start a, a sports season, you have to finish it. And my parents were good about saying like, give it enough tries that you're absolutely sure that this isn't for you. And usually that was, you know, once I played one season of softball, for example, softball was not for me. I was a ballet dancer. I was a tap dancer. Softball was like, I'm trying a sport. I was in the outfield doing pirouettes because I was bored, right? Like it was too (laughs) slow, but I gave it the whole season. And then I said, well, I'm not going to do that again. Right. Um, but I think that as adults, we start to like, stop doing those things. We get into routines with, with our work and our lives and maybe the one, source of exercise. And maybe we have, you know, we have kids and we're, we're, we feel like we're changing because our kids are changing and our kids are experiencing different things, but we're not actually giving ourselves the chance to learn and to grow and to find stuff. And we don't allow ourselves. And in a lot of ways that's self-care, right? I mean, and, and I just love 
the idea that um, being a consummate learner, it just means you can you can try stuff. You can all you're always absorbing um, and kind of growing as a human. Yeah, my my husband is a juggler. In addition to being a flash therapist, I was. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Life. So, um, <laughs> my my husband is a juggler, and he spins poi and spins fire and all kinds of crazy things. Sort of a hob- hobbyist circus performer, and um, <laughs> we have this we have this saying in our life that uh, drop the sound of dropping is the sound of learning. Essentially, mm-hmm. every time you fail, so he juggles, and you drop a lot of balls before you learn to keep the balls in the air. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So the sound of it, every time it drops, we go, oh, that's the sound of learning. <laughs> learning. Oh, I love that so much. I have to write that down. Um, so speaking of um, learning and being a consummate changer uh, or consummate learner, rather, um, you have a book that you're working on, right? You have a book that I'm lear- I'm working on. Tell um, us about that. Well, I am. So my my target audience for this book is middle management. There's a ton of books at upper management a ton of books at individual contributors. I'm trying to hit the middle management market. Nice. A little bit of this. I, I think that it's hard to, there's sort of three hats you carry when you're a middle manager. One is that of the advocate. You're advocating for your employees. You're helping them grow and giving them avenues for further growth and, and autonomy and all the things that you're doing, making a case into your human resources department for work from home, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is you're doing. That's so the advocate side. Then there's the enforcer side, which says, I'm going to make sure that we don't break with the status quo of the company. So I'm going to protect it from liability and I'm going to um, follow the procedures exactly as laid out in human resources and I'm going to adhere to what exists today. And this goes beyond just policy. It's also culture. So I'm going to adhere to the culture of our company as well. I'm not going to make waves. I'm going to enforce. And then there's this third hat that they wear, which is that of the human employee inside that organization who wants to be promoted and recognized, who also wants to grow, um, and who wants to be kind to the people around them. Most people really do want to be kind. So I'm sure somebody, one of your listeners is like, I had that one boss. He definitely didn't want to be kind. And and it, I would I would postulate that that manager was under some kind of pressure that made it hard to be kind. Mm-hmm. And most people want to be kind to their fellow humans. Mm-hmm. And um, the book is really focused on how do you balance those three roles um, of the advocate and the enforcer and the human employee um, and, and do what is best for everybody involved instead of only for the company or you or the employee. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a tremendous amount of transparency and a tremendous amount of um, what my family would call chutzpah. Which is the Jewish term for uh, grit, I think, mm-hmm. I think the best way to explain it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, a, that's the essence of what I'm after here. And as we talked about, I'm, I've been in a little bit of a writer's block. The idea came to me when I was angry. Um, and I've had to get to work through the anger so that I can really write the book from a place of holistic, uh, humanness instead of from an angry place. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, you know, the writing process, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I believe it's about the learning process, right? The, the writing process for, I've done so much writing in my life in short formats, right? The only long form I've ever done is my dissertation. And it was so 
structured, I had such a roadmap of what a dissertation was supposed to look like in a structured sense that it felt like short, you know, pieces, right? It felt, it was so broken up where the writing of a, a novel, even when I separated, even though I have a great chapter outline and I have a whole, you know, I know what all these pieces are, somehow just getting them all down and on paper, it's just such a different process. And that in itself has been my uh, consummate learning, right, um, over the last year. And this is, a for me, my book is a book that has um, been in my head circulating for probably a decade. And so now it's, there's all of these gray amalgamous thoughts, like trying to, to come out into a structured form that makes sense to someone besides me. Um, but I think that that, you know, understanding, speaking of emotional intelligence, right, like understanding where we are, and for you to be self-aware enough to say, you know, I'm, I was writing from a place of anger and that helps sometimes to be, it can be a productive, but not necessarily how you want it to come out. Like it's productive to get the, that energy out in some way and, and writing can be an outlet for that, but it doesn't necessarily um, it reflect the voice that you want it to have uh, long-term, right? Yeah, and, and if to write a book from a position of anger inside a book where I'm trying to essentially uh, encourage people to self-manage. <laughs> really right, right. <laughs> so um, we want to, it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to do things poorly just because you're angry. Um, right. Absolutely. So I had one other um, switcheroo, but what, what, um, how do you feel like the differences in kind of educating a child, and I know you said you had a, a fifth grader, right? Um, um, the difference in the way that we approach education to a child than we do to an, an adult. What are some of those like differentials? Uh, okay, so first I wanna say, I don't think there's a, there should be a lot. <laughs> I think they should be really similar. <laughs> love that, I love that so much. Um, you know, we, as a species, in fact, most animals learn best through play. For example, when you see a pack of wolves and they've got wolf cubs, the wolf cubs play with each other as a way to practice future hunting skills, you know, mm -hmm. and social mm -hmm. skills. Um, kids play to learn. We give them toys to learn how to put shapes in holes when they're really little. Um, and then as they age, we start to take the play out of the learning and it becomes uninteresting for a student. Um, and then what I do when I bring in corporate training is put the play back in the learning. I'm, I'm really focused on making it bright and colorful and interesting and engaging and it's still on topic, but they get to do activities and practice and sometimes they're fun and sometimes they're serious and sometimes they're uh, silly and sometimes they're thoughtful, but it's all about giving people the experiences of things. Mm. Um, you know, my, uh, we are doing public school simply by a matter of who we are, we are not meant to homeschool our children. And um, I understand, yep, yep. I, I applaud those who can and I would not be one of them, so. And, and what's available here in our state, um, my sister has her daughter in something called open school where the kids sort of define their own path. And the teachers, they like say, I'm interested in a thing. And then the teachers look for ways to teach them things inside that thing. A really good example um, is like, Dungeons and Dragons. You can teach math through Dungeons and Dragons. There is a lot of math involved in that. Um, yes. Math, it's usually addition and subtraction, but that's that's basic math learning for a young student. Mm -hmm. And 
um, you know, you could, there's any number of things you're interested in architecture. We could teach you geometry in architecture. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be a cool experience for every student to get to say, well, I'm interested in dinosaurs. Okay, well, let's talk about dinosaurs and let's talk about the science behind figuring out how old a bone is and all the different things you could dig into around a student's interest instead of, you know, sucking the joy out of it. One of my uh, favorite things I've seen different when I was younger, they, they assigned books. You have to read these books and then you're going to write reports on these books. I think I wrote, I read Tom Sawyer three times throughout middle school. Um, and it wasn't a book I wanted to read. Mm-hmm. And what they do now is they have um, something called an accelerated reader program for my son. And he picks whatever book he wants to read and then takes a test on it. Mm-hmm. And that means he's really reading whatever he wants instead of what they've prescribed to him to read. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I just read an article from Edutopia about um, four, what was it? Um, four things we should stop doing as it relates to reading. And one of them was this, this prescriptive idea of you, you read this and only this, and we talk about this and whatever, instead of let's find things that kids are truly excited and interested in and let's get them to engage in reading and then share that excitement because the energy of excitement when you come in and you've read something that you really love or you've done something that you really love is so much more engaging to other kids, right? So going around a classroom and all talking about the same book that some people might've, you know, maybe 10% of the class loved, the rest of them powered through and some of them absolutely hated, right? It's going to be much less effective than 30 kids coming in, all having read something they were super excited about and ready to share it, right? And then playing off the energy of like, oh, that book actually, he made that sound great. I want to also do this. There's like, there's just a, an amplification of energy there. Yeah. yeah. And I think it also would be good to get, allow kids, particularly those with learning disabilities to allow kids to come to reading in a different way. Like I'm an audio learner, an auditory learner. And I didn't figure that out until I was like 30. I had no idea I was an auditory learner and I've moved all my reading is on audio audiobooks now. I sometimes get the physical copy for reference. Uh-huh. Most of the time I listen to books and I read much faster as a result and I consume the information much better and I remember it better. Um, wouldn't it be neat if we did that sort of thing for kids too? In what way do you learn? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the push towards standardization hurts children, mm-hmm. especially since once they get into adulthood, you actually are pushed to specialization, not generalization. Right. right. Um, and it just doesn't map with what's going to be their reality when they're grown up. Right. Yeah. I also am a very auditory um, learner and I, I discovered um, audiobooks when I had a long commute, probably 15 years ago. And then when I started doing long distance running, it became my, you know, distraction from the founding of the payment. And I just have always loved them. I also equally love reading, but to your point, I consume a lot faster in the audible, mainly just because of time. Like I'm going to, I had to do that commute. I'm going to go on that long run. And if I can consume information while I'm doing it, that's my way of, you know, just like taking in more, more. And sometimes they're just for fun and sometimes they're for business and sometimes they're for, you know, whatever, um, self, self confidence or whatever. I feel like reading that day or listening to, but, but I, I, I appreciate that point because if I had discovered, um, I would have had a lot more fun reading the required you know, high school books, if they had had Audible back in the day. 
<laughs> right in the day, right? And I could listen to it, but I would still get the book and I maybe mark it, like you said, sometimes if it's something I really love or if it was like something for school, I would certainly still mark it up or have the, the hard copy to make notes or whatever. But um, but if I could like listen to the story and um, especially some of the fiction, because um, oftentimes the the narrators of the fiction in an audible sense, when you are an audible um, learner can be so interesting because you have you have this ability to use your imagination in creating the characters the same way you would if you're reading it without, you know, if you're not watching the movie where it's cre- those cre- characters are created for you, you're reading it. But if you are listening to it and they can sometimes do these different voices and different intonations and you can just, you know, really retain uh, the story that way and, and find interest in it. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great point. I, um, you know, work mostly in terms of educating. I work mostly with college kids because I've been an adjunct professor for, uh, with the exception of the last, uh, the spring or the uh, fall of 2019 and then all of 2020 where we were in pandemic. I was an adjunct professor um, for almost 20 years and working with, with college age kids has been super interesting because they are cusping on that adult and they are starting to do that specialization and they are starting, but they also come in with learning patterns from their K-12 days. Obviously it's there. This is that bridge period. And, and it really does make a difference how, you know, how well they connected with education in their um, younger years, their formative years, um, and how open they are to different types of education in, in the college experience. So um, I think that that's uh, a fascinating thing to think about, you know, how we, we push them into these little funnels, and then they go out into the workforce and may or may not um, embrace learning as part of that. But really the best leaders really have to, as, as is your point to, uh, to liberating elephant. Yeah. <laughs> to liberate yeah. An elephant. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, um, it, you just can't, you can't stop. There's so much, I mean, we're in a global world. We have access to so much information. Um, I, I will, you know, you'll never be able to read everything that's out there. So, mm-hmm. so pick what, what matches and then do your niche, you know, that go after your niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of my kids were, are, I have an older one who's an adult who's out of the house. So I've gotten him all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> Check that box. Check that That's box. Right. And, um, you know, both my kids have a leaning towards math and sciences over the, um, you know, in ELA, English language arts, they call it now in elementary school mm-hmm. and, um, and the, you know, histories. Um, but my oldest by going in, he had an interest in war and military stuff. He's in the air force now. So it's Mm. not a huge surprise. Right. And, uh, um, but he's like reads histories now, like he's interested in the history of events and what led up to those events and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and had he gotten the choice when he was in history class, he would have chosen, let me learn about the civil war instead of like the war tactics instead of all the other stuff that we teach about the civil war and probably would have gotten just as much enrichment out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really, you know, customized education. I know it's really tough to think about that at a, at a K-12 level, but I, I have a lot of discussions with people who are like, how can we not do incremental changes to education? How do we do revolutionary changes? And I really believe there's something around customized education um, that you, if you can meet students in some replicable way where they are, where their real interests are, then the love of learning will by proxy make them better 
kind of lifelong learners and then better humans and then better work workers in the workforce or better entrepreneurs or wherever they, you know, end up. So um, that's a, it's a powerful thing and an and a overwhelming one in some ways to think about, but, but also like super exciting. So yeah. And there's, there are schools doing it. There's a school I want to say in Germany that is K through 12 open schooling that's been doing it for some years. Mm. Uh, uh, so there are schools out there. There are models out there that have tried it and mm-hmm. we could learn from, um, we could learn from them, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take that learning forward. Oh, that would be amazing. Well, as we start to wrap up, tell people how they can get in touch with you. Um, sure. Well, the easiest way to get in touch with me is to, um, connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, which is, you know, my world's uh, social media, my business world yeah. social media platform. So LinkedIn is a good place to go. They could also go to my website, um, www.liberatedelephant.com. And if they want to talk more about these ideas or what it might mean to bring coaching, individual personal coaching or coaching into their organization, there's a little book a, book a time with me button and they can book time with me. Easy as that. Well, that is perfect. I cannot thank you enough for joining me today and just talking through you know, uh, all things kink in the armor and, um, and education related and uh, best of luck with, with your business. And thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thank you. Best of luck with your book as you come to <laughs> Yes. Yes. And your book. That's right. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been Dissecting Education with your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks, a production of In Pursuit Research. Outcomes-driven, impact-focused. Thanks, and we'll see you on another episode soon.